We all feel better in the dark. We all feel better in the dark. We all feel better in the dark. In conclusion, if you find yourself falling asleep, having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare, while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers, and you don't know it's a new nightmare, and then you got Jason, he's got an axe, got Kelly rolling, she's not saying, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby. License to ill flow. H-Y. Once upon a time on a Super Bowl night, two guys from BK brought the points to life. Gave you some previews and some laughs. Was it no big thing? No one thought it would last. Then one started growling at the mention of a chick. The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed. Next thing you know, they got a good fan base. So they said, what the hell? Let's continue the pace. No stone uncovered. They will take on a topic. Might bring on a guest. And together they rock it. Cause they're in like Flint. Too much is a cool. If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school. I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. The best podcast out, hands down, it's set. So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park. Welcome to another show of Better in the Dark. We are friends, you and I. <laughs> good, good. And now for a smoke. No, no, this is good smoke. You try. here at there in the dark among many of promising certain things and then forgetting about them for a long time but we always deliver that's right may take us years <laughs> and we're finally beginning to deliver on something we promised what about three years ago like an Atlantic City slot machine eventually we pay off right <laughs> but unlike an Atlantic City slot machine, if we pay off too big, goons don't come to your house to beat you up. Mm. We are finally going to start here our exploration of the Universal Horror Movie Monster series. Which people have been harassing us about unmercifully ever since we said we were going to do it. I don't, I don't think there's not two or three days go by without on Facebook or you get an email, mm -hmm. I get a, When are you guys going to do the Universal Monster thing that you've been promising? Part of it was, of course, we couldn't do it without an authoritative voice. Wouldn't even dream of doing it without this gentleman that we have with us today. And he was a very popular guest. It was only a matter of time. We speak, of course, of San Francisco's own Lord Bloodrock. <laughs> I'm not the lady, I'm the lady. 
thank you, and I'm honored to be back here with these two fine gentlemen. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Oh, we are so pleased to have you back. People loved our episode on the horror movie host tradition. Yeah, very big episode, and we keep track of everything that this gentleman is doing. I so wish I lived in San Francisco or had a supersonic jet to get there, because I see on Facebook all of the stuff that you do over there and all the events you're involved in. And, man, listen, I would come to San Francisco, just come and hang out with you for a weekend. Oh, thank you. You're more than welcome. It would be great. I wish you guys lived closer, too. Come out and see some of the shows, and we go out and uh, hang out and see the Bay Area. Uh, I'd bring my friend Snake Man. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) What we're using as a structure is the Universal Legacy sets. They came out in, what, 2008, was it? Yeah, something like that. I think oh, that's... No, I think, I think it was maybe a little earlier, because I think they were originally tied into the release of uh, Van Helsing. Mm. They had those horrid little featurettes on the making of yes. Van Helsing, which, wow, talk about a stake in the heart, man. Steve <laughs> Summers introduces you to the world of... No, it's okay, Steve. You don't have to introduce me. I'll just stand over here, okay? Oh, Lord have mercy, what a train wreck. <laughs> Oh, my. Put the monsters down and step away, Mr. Summers. Yes. And I actually watched Van Helsing for the first time since I've seen it in the theater. After a while, you said, maybe it's not as bad as I remember. Yes, it is. Well, that's why I'm doing this project with Des in the summer, where we're going back and revisiting Millennium. Yeah. Because the last time I saw that series was when it was first aired. Right. And when you get a little bit of time and perspective, you come back and you say, well, maybe it's not that bad. But, yeah, I watched Van Helsing, and, yeah, it was that bad. (laughs) The black and white sequence, though, pretty good. I was excited after that black and white opening. I thought, okay, let's, let's see where they go. And went places that no one should ever go. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Come with us. As soon as they introduced Mr. Hyde as the Hulk. Yeah, once I saw that, I knew exactly where that movie was going to go. They did Mr. Hyde as the Hulk in the League of Extraordinary right. Gentlemen, but it worked because that's a superhero movie anyway. Right. So I didn't mind. But in this one, no, I didn't know. I, didn't. I remember clearly about a year before this movie came out. I was having dinner with Steve Roman. You've met Steve. Yeah. Who was my editor at the time at Byron Price. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about all these potential properties that were being pitched to Byron Price. And he said, oh my God, you're not going to believe this Van Helsing thing. He said, rolling his eyes. And he described the opening of Van Helsing fighting with his secret ninja weapons Mm -hmm. against Mr. Hyde in Paris. And he said, this is going to be the most stupid thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Among many stupid things that we have all seen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a special place in hell reserved for Van Helsing. Yeah, I agree. God bless Steve Summers. You know exactly what you're getting when you hire him to do a movie. Lots of CGI. Those scenes where the camera suddenly pulls in tight or pulls away so you get a big reveal of CGI. Characters fighting with CGI. Mm Mm-hmm. CGI. Did I mention CGI? He knows that, but but listen, the guy knows how to make an action movie. He does. He knows how to direct action. I'll give him that. He doesn't believe in shaky cam. And you can see who's fighting who in his right. fight scenes. I'll tell you, I liked his mummy. I thought the mummy was good, and I didn't mind the entire kind of Indiana Jones thing that was added to it, because the mummy lends itself to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was fine, but making Van Helsing into this ninja superhero, uh, no. But the mummy I liked. The sequel, no, but the mummy I liked. 
I enjoyed The Mummy tremendously. I didn't mind the sequels. I didn't like them as much as The Mummy, but I didn't mind them. Right. Because now, Summers directed the second one. Yeah, he didn't direct the third one. The Tomb of Dragon right. Emperor, yeah. Now, wasn't it the second one where they're out running daylight? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the second one? That was the second one. He has to get his son to the temple before, and yeah, and Rick O'Connell is literally outrunning sunlight. Yeah, I just broke out laughing at that point. Like, oh my god! Because yeah. obviously Rick O'Connell is a ancestor of Barry Allen, apparently, since he can outrun sunlight. <laughs> exactly. Oh lord. That's become an action figure troll about running fireballs and explosions yeah. and sunlight and. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what they should be doing. Let's have them outrun things that it's realistic they're going to outrun. Toddlers. Yes. There we outrun. go. Romero zombie. There you go. Yeah, that's right. And what were we talking about again? I think we're supposed to be somehow finding a way to grab it and pull it back. We're trying to segue into the universal yeah. monster. Okay, I got gotcha. you. We're failing miserably. Let's just yeah, 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 let's just be honest. We're failing miserably at it. So let's stop with the segues and no, just should, go right to it. We should mention that unlike usually where we would go chronologically, yes. we're going with Frankenstein first because, quite frankly, Frankenstein is a better movie. Yeah, who doesn't yeah. love Frankenstein? I'm not a big fan of the original Mummy movies myself. Right. Dracula, I'm not a big fan. I'm sorry, Your Highness, but I'm not a big fan of the original Bela Lugosi, Dracula. But Frankenstein turns my crank every time. Yeah, I will freely admit Frankenstein, I, in my opinion, is a better movie yeah. than Dracula overall. Absolutely. You know why I think so many people can identify with Frankenstein? Because he's nuts. <laughs> no, that's not why my girlfriends <laughs> identify with Frankenstein. You know why I love Frankenstein? Because Frankenstein is the ultimate never-say-die guy. <laughs> no matter how much he screws up, he always says, I'm going to get it right this time. Right. That's right. <laughs> okay, maybe I should have said the reason why we all identify with the Frankenstein monster. Ah, okay. Is that most of us, I'm sure we agree, the, the three of the people in this room, they first encountered Frankenstein as a little kid on the Shock Theater package, mm-hmm. which was shown whether it was here in New York as part of Fright Night Thriller. Or Thriller or Creature Feature. I don't know. Did Creature Features have the Shock Cinema package or was it another? It wasn't Shock. It was a few years later, but they did have all of the classic Universal films, and that is where I was first introduced to them at a very young age. Yeah. Is the fact that we're young and Frankenstein is almost a child. He's ungainly. He tries to do the right thing, and he makes mistakes that, in, in his case, have fatal consequences. And I think that there's an empathy little kids have for the monster because they feel ungainly. Well, and they yeah. feel ill at sorts with the world they're still learning about. Absolutely. I you agree. know, he's, uh, he's trying to figure out the world, tries to do the right thing, but also throws tantrums. And we've got this superhuman seven-foot body, <laughs> tantrums are a pretty devastating thing. Whether you're a child, like you say, Tom, or if you're an adult, right. you can relate to the Frankenstein monster. When you're a little child, he is a child, and he's trying to figure out what's going on in the Bride of Frankenstein. The whole thing is he goes around saying, friend, friend. He's right. looking for a friend. Yeah. He wants. What is that thing? He just wants companionship. But then adults relate to him because adults look at him, and they see a poor bastard who never asked for the shit that he's right. got to be put through. And who doesn't feel like that? you got to go to work. you got to deal with your boss, your co-worker. Right. You got to deal with your wife, your family. You feel put upon. You never asked for none of this. So did the Frankenstein. He didn't ask to be put together. 
Well, there's that sequence in Bride of Frankenstein where the young shepherdist falls in the water. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the monster comes. In fact, this, this is, is the it. sequence. I didn't even know that this was happening. Well, I have Bride of Frankenstein up on the BITV Jumbotron. He waves at the saver, and she reacts in horror while he's trying to help her. He's trying to dry her off, and he's screaming. And he's saying, listen, shut up! Not a bad guy. And she's... You. Losing you it. were drowning. <laughs> I got in. I saved you. Right. Unlike the little girl in the first one, I know that being in that water is a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Got you out. And I still get crap for it. <laughs> Who can't relate to that, that you try to do a good thing, and it's misunderstood right. by people? Oh, well, why did you do that? Well, I was just trying to do Oh, we don't care what you were trying to do. You should have did it this way. And I think that even today, that is where the appeal of the original Frankenstein comes from, because mm-hmm. it's something that we have all can relate to and we've all experienced. And that's the true magic and power of the original Frankenstein. Right. Yes. And that goes right to the performance of Boris Karloff. We were talking before we started recording about how much I love watching the physicality of Karloff. He's incredibly elegant with his body movements. Absolutely. And of course, the director as well, James Whale, does an amazing job Mm -hmm. with it. We're talking about the monster as an absolute innocent, which he's portrayed as. But there's an interesting inconsistency in the film, because don't forget the brain that is put the monster is supposed to be evil from the start. Right. right. It's the criminal, the criminal brain. brain. Happy normal brain. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to the commentary on the, the legacy edition of the original Frankenstein and the commentator speculates why doesn't Henry recognize considering that he's been in the classroom with this brain the differences between the brilliant brain and the criminal brain. <laughs> but then again I like to think that Henry was just bug fuck driven. <laughs> The jar was labeled. Yes. <laughs> Don't use this brain. Right. First, like, <laughs> get the brain. First of all, I crack up every time where he says, "This is this." Okay, go get me a brain. <laughs> and he goes in there. And when he drops the good brain, the oh shit expression on his face is so <laughs> incredible. And he looks around like, well, he'll never know the difference. <laughs> and he takes the abnormal brain. And you like, know what it is about Dwight Fry? <laughs> He's got those really heavy eyebrows, which make yes. reaction shots like that doubly funny. And he doesn't say, oh, shit. But you look at his and you know exactly that's what he's thinking. What he's thinking, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. shit. And he just looks around and says, wait, one brain is just as good as another. What the hell? Right. <laughs> Even though the jar is labeled. (laughs) When you think about it, they're setting up the monster to be evil because they say he's got an evil brain in him. But Mm. once you see the monster through his reactions, he's not evil. He's an innocent. Right. He's a pure innocent. But I wonder if that was partially because of Carlos' performance. You look at Glenn Strange, for example, later on in the series, and he's doing a much more conventional lumbering monster type. Well, that's because later on in the series, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't Igor's brain get transplanted into yes. the monster's And Igor, this is a guy definitely missing spots off his dice. Yes, yes, yes. There's a real problem that the Frankenstein men apparently have with brains. <laughs> But again, it goes back to what I, I said. I mean, even Wolf. Frankenstein is the ultimate, whatever it is, I can fix right. it. <laughs> if I don't fix it this time, I'll fix it. But Frankenstein, the monster you created, killed up 35 people, burned down the town. But I can fix this. Trust me. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. The next time. <laughs> 
They all think that. I think it's Ghost of Frankenstein where the scientist, he's not even a Frankenstein. But he says, I know that this thing is evil and I shouldn't do it, but I can't resist it. <laughs> <laughs> even Wolf, who is arguably the least cracked. The Basil Rathbone, that's Wolf Frankenstein, right? Yes. He's the least cracked of the Frankensteins. <laughs> One of the things that I think is interesting about the first two Frankenstein films is that Colin Clive looks like he's already a couple of cards short of a pinnacle deck. Oh, that namby-pamby. Oh, oh, yeah. He's such a wuss. He's like Avon from Blake 7. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to admit, he's the guy that pulls off that classic line, and that's what we think of when we yeah. think of that. It's alive! It's alive, oh, yeah. I tell you! It's alive! <laughs> And in rewatching these movies, you can easily understand how Mel Brooks could make Young Frankenstein mm -hmm. because there is a lot of comedy in the Frankenstein movie if you stop oh, to yes. look at them. Let's start, I guess, talking about the one that started it all. Okay. You got it. it was 31, right? 31. 1931's Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, fresh off of Waterloo Bridge, if I remember correctly. This was the second of the Universal Monster movies, which were the pet project of Carl Lamel Jr. Apparently Carl Lamel Sr. didn't care for them, but he cared for the money they brought But when in. they started making money, he cared. <laughs> I think it's level. Okay. Yes. The first thing that I, I want to say about this movie is it moves. Yes. Yeah, it's not boring. Unlike, unlike Dracula. Yeah. Well, Dracula is obviously a stage play. Right. Translates to the screen, yeah. Even though this version of Frankenstein was based also on a stage play, which was apparently never produced in the United States, even though they had created a United States version of it, it is very cinematic. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And it just, it goes at a clip. It never stops. And thanks to the direction and the cinematography, mm -hmm. it, it's got a very surrealistic look to it yeah. many times. And... What I also like is that it's kind of timeless. You have the villagers living in this village, but then you see guys walk around in 20th century suits right. and hats. So you're not... Yeah, well, what was the name of, of Henry's friend, the one that's obviously prowling around Elizabeth? He looks like he just stepped off a 1930s air clipper. Yeah, so it's very nebulous. You're not sure exactly what time period this is taking place in. Oh, no, wrong. It's Victor Moritz. It's sort of all in the novel. Yeah, exactly. Dracula, all these universal films, are starting actually with this film, Frankenstein, take place somewhere outside of conventional reality in a time you can't really place in a vague European yeah. <laughs> setting that doesn't really exist. I don't know if that was a choice to make these timeless, but it definitely does. You can watch them in any era and, and identify with the drama that's going on. Correct me if I'm wrong, they don't even name the locale that this is taking place. Village of Frankenstein. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Frankenstein's got his own village. It's my village. With his own villagers, yeah. Great, now, I promise I won't be it doing It takes place in the province of Frankenstein. I don't know. Yeah. But that's one thing I like about them, because since they're not tied to any one time or place, it's taking place in some alternate world, so we right. can really get into the story. And that's what we pay attention to. Because at its, that's what's really important here, the story. With the many complicated themes. A man playing God. An innocent trapped in a giant's body. All of these different elements that are swirled in this thing. And you can pick them apart. And no matter what, you find something that you can relate to and enjoy in this story. Which is why it's lasted so long. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely right. All, all of that is true, all the themes, the responsibility of science in society, of parental responsibility, all of that is all there. All of those themes taken from the novel, which was an amazing feat back in 1818, but for the film, you've just also got the iconic look of that creature. When he first turns into camera, and you do that three-stage close-up on that face, it is stunning. Absolutely amazing. Now, is there any truth to the rumor, because Lugosi was originally supposed to play the monster. I've heard that. Now, is there any truth to the rumor that the, the makeup was so ridiculous that when Lugosi showed up on the set to, sh to shoot the text footage, Whale burst out laughing? I don't know about that. What I heard was the makeup was almost kind of a caveman-like makeup. That, coupled with a script which didn't have any pathos for the monster at all. Frankenstein creates him and he starts killing people right from the get-go. <laughs> that is essentially what made Lagoste of the project. I believe that's the case. As far as James Whale seeing the makeup and rejecting it, I don't know. Well, from what I understand, the makeup, we credit Jack Pierce, but it was a collaboration between Pierce and Karloff. <laughs> There's so much. Well, actually, James Whale is mm -hmm. actually taking credit for it, saying, well, yeah, I sketched this out, they gave it to Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce says, no, this is all my idea. Karloff suggestions, like one of the suggestions that he later said in an interview was that in the full makeup, he looked at his eyes and his eyes looked too bright. They were a lot. He suggested mm -hmm. ears to put some bits of over the eyelids, made them down, the eyes more dead looking. I don't think any other contributions to the look, but it's always been kind of a who takes full credit for it. Probably mostly a collaboration. Right. Each of them make different yeah. contributions. To it. The other thing is that it's obvious that Whale is more interested in being a film director. He uses a lot of film movement, like the pan in the opening shot, from the mourners to the statue of the Grim Reaper. Yes. But this one, I think, is played more or less straight. The yes. next one, however, we'll get to that later. Okay. Fucking you know, Connor. But... <laughs> Oh, she's hilarious, man. I don't know what you're talking about. I loved her in The Invisible Man. That bitch could scream. <laughs> oh, my lord. Oh, my lord. The original scream queen, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Faye Ray had nothing on this broad. This broad, when she uncourt, man, dogs came running from miles around. Yeah, but who better date? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, man. There's that. Now... There was supposedly a different ending. We were supposed to actually see Henry die at the end of it, right? Yeah. It, it, when you watch that film, the scene, the monster throwing him over and hitting the blades of that windmill, he's dead. That's a dead man. <laughs> he said, that's a dead man. Yeah. The funny thing is, yeah. is that when we saw it as kids on TV, they cut out that last scene of Papa Frankenstein saying, no, he's hurt, but he'll recover. Now leave the newlyweds alone. That was at the end of the movie? Please remember that scene. That's interesting. There's a scene at the very end, which apparently they shot several months later. When they decided they were going to make a sequel. I think it was more to just uh, take the edge off. It was the same time that they had Edward Sloan come out and do his little presentation yeah. about what you're going to see might frighten you. It's outside Henry's bedroom, and his father comes out, and you can see Elizabeth and Henry, and I don't even know if that's supposed to be Colin Clive. I think mm -hmm. it might be a different actor. Yeah, just somebody yeah, they got the clock definitely they're like lying in bed and he's going he's gonna recover now everybody they'll get married once he's in bed let's all have a toast <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> yes 
See, I don't remember that. But then again, I never saw the scene with the little girl being drowned until yeah. PBS. They started showing Frankenstein uncut. But when I watched it on Channel 9 right. or Channel 11, they always cut that part out. See, yeah. that's the thing that I find fascinating is that in a way, by cutting out, because if I remember correctly, the scene ends with him just reaching for the girl. Yeah. In the version that we used to watch when right. it was cut. When you get a little older, the implications can be a lot more horrific. When yeah. You don't see what he does. <laughs> you, know, you start making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. And of course, the other major cut that was made for the TV version, and then actually some years after the original release, because whoever objects to these things objected to it, was after It's Alive, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. Yeah. Oh, okay. It feels like God was cut. And it's just a lightning strike put over it. In fact, they had to make a number of cuts when the Hays Code came in. Mm -hmm. That's right. When they tried to re-release the film, including the lines of anything that referenced God and I don't want right. like to be God. And but it's funny because this is one of these films where the cuts actually make it even more horrific. Yeah, yeah. We have to make up. What, yeah, yeah, you see. <laughs> yeah. Frankenstein reach, and then the next thing you see is the father bringing the corpse. Yeah. To the town square, and you're like, what the hell? What did he do to her? <laughs> you say, oh my way God. More, way more. Yeah, way more horrible. I mean, I was a kid sitting there biting my knuckles saying, oh my God. <laughs> what did he do to her? Dad, yeah. shut up, son. Watch the movie. <laughs> Just shut up. <laughs> I don't know if these were intentional grace notes of humor or not. There are some moments like when Frankenstein comes in on Elizabeth, who in this film was played by May Clark, and we learned that another great experiment Henry Frankenstein did was transform his fiance from a blonde to a brunette mm. in between movies. Well, he is a Frankenstein. Major scientific feat there, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Frankenstein comes in and she finally sees him for the first time and screams and he does that almost like a hottie growl. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite funny moments in Frankenstein well, Fritz was always hilarious. He's just mm -hmm. great. Dwight Fry, amazing character actor. The doctor is up in the laboratory working on things. There's a knock at the door. It's his father, Victor, and his fiance. He's sent down to tell them to go away. <laughs> and he's down the stairs muttering to himself, what are they doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Goes to the door, tells him to go away. Starts going back and says, "Going out, out, out." With that freaky ass short cane of his, hunchback dwarfing guy, he stops, reaches down, and pulls up his sock. This guy is a total mess, but he notices his sock is gone. Beautiful moment. Me. I always like that scene when he's going up and down the stairs because there's some things that's kind of indistinct and I like putting it in myself <laughs> what he's saying. It's like Popeye. Cause I, yeah, because I know what he's saying. <laughs> that's right. He's got a few things there that, yeah, somebody should really enhance that audio. Too. <laughs> there's a couple of things he's saying you can't quite catch, but I know what he's saying now. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. Now, while there are funny bits in the first film, th there's a good case made for the second film being a, a straight-out comedy, Bride of Frankenstein. A dark comedy, oh yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, I just hosted The Bride of Frankenstein mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, and I don't even need to say it, it still holds up. On yeah. the big screen, in front of an audience, where it's still a fantastic film. But yeah, there are a lot more darkly funny moments in Bride than there were in the original, definitely. And this is probably the first sequel that we've ever had in movie history that, in a lot of ways, a good argument can be made. It's better than the original. Right. 
I know for a fact I've seen Bride more than I have any right. other Frankenstein movie, not counting the Hammer Horror movies, which is a different Frankenstein, right. which I love to death, as Tommy knows. Yeah. But I've seen Bride the most times out of it because it's just such a whacked out movie, especially with Dr. Pretorius, who, oh. in, who in a lot of ways, wait a minute, hold on, let me finish, is like a prototype version of the Dr. Frankenstein we're going to see in the Hammer Horror movies. Oh, interesting. Has played by Harvey Corman. <laughs> He got it. He got it. He got it. Okay. Yes. Because, <laughs> oh my God, Ernest Schlesinger is not taking a single thing seriously in that film. No, no. May I have some more scenery, please? <laughs> oh, I would like to chew on it. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I thought it was alone. <laughs> I, okay, that cracks me up. Once again, we sign a scene and it's up there. I love that scene because the monster, and it don't phase him a bit. <laughs> He sends Fritz and can't remember the name of the other grave robber. I'm going to sit here and have a little lunch. I like it in here. No, but the really funny part comes after that because then they go upstairs and he says, well, leave me that lantern there. And they go outside and Fritz looks at the other guy and he says, what do you say, pal? This is getting too much for me. What do you say we just let him hang up? <laughs> and the guy says, yeah. <laughs> what he says is, this is no life for a murderer. <laughs> yeah. That whole scene, because they go down into that crypt, they find this woman in the coffin, right? Yeah. And he says, I hope her bones are firm. <laughs> so he just stripped the flesh off of this dead woman. Those are the bones he's sitting there drinking with. Yeah. So he decides, hey, my work's done. I'm going to have a drink and a snack. <laughs> <laughs> and the Frankenstein monster shows up. Why not? <laughs> hey, hey. Oh, all in an evening's fun, right? He offers the monster a drink and a smoke. He said, "Here, smoke. Yeah, yeah, have a cigar. You want you? (laughs) You want a drink? Yeah, have a drink." And then the monster starts says, "You make dead person like me." (laughs) I love dead. Oh man, hate life. You're wise in your generation. Oh, man. Again, we're just proving how timeless it is because we can quote scenes almost verbatim. You know? Oh, yeah. Right from Uno Connor at the beginning when she's uh, haranguing the burger. Her and the burgermeister are like an old married couple bickering back and forth. She, oh, the monster's not dead yet. He said, go home, woman. Why don't you shut this <laughs> Go home. Stop riding. She says, who's riding? Does the burgermeister has to smack a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> And the burger place is like, monster indeed. And she's so freaking uppity when she's announcing Pretaria. It's like, no, no, send her away. I certainly will. Oh, and I love man. the fact that she goes off to talk to Pretarius, and he just comes into the other room. And he comes in through the other door. door. Yeah. Yeah, he just walks in. Just oh, man. And she actually sees the monster. He climbs up out the yes. thing. And he's just standing there. She turns around and screams. And she goes back to Castle Frankenstein and says, listen, he's not dead. He's not dead. And the butler says, shut up, old woman. <laughs> we don't believe in your monster. She snaps her fingers and says, well, I'll, all of y'all get murdered in your beds. Right. Yeah. She does the speech snap. <laughs> as a straight horror movie if you want or as a comedy I prefer to watch it as both Clive was already a very over the top actor in the first one yeah now compared to Schlesinger and Una O'Connor and all these other characters he's positively normal yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> Pretorius 
a lot of people have said that James Orwell was openly gay, mm -hmm. which was almost unheard of back then in the, in the 1930s. And so was Ernest Thessinger. He was also openly gay. Okay. A lot of people have said that looking back on that film now, he threw Dr. Pretorius in. Because when you think about it, he walks in on their wedding night, sends her away, and takes him and leaves with him. <laughs> oh, subtext. Yeah, so a lot of people are saying, oh, he's throwing in some gay innuendo there. That these two people, on their, on their wedding night, Pretorius is going to take Henry Frankenstein away, and they're going to produce a life. Yeah, oh. Yeah, See, it, it's, it's interesting. See, this is why yeah. we've got this man here. He brings the knowledge. <laughs> and now, folks, all of this is even before we get to the actual Bride of Frankenstein herself, played by Elsa Lanchester. She was a hottie back in the day. Oh, yes. Now, do you think that we really needed that sequence with Mary Shelley and Lord Byron and Percy Shelley? Yes. Hanging out and just going, oh... Mary, you are such a wonderful writer. If for nothing else, as we get to see how beautiful Elsa Lanchester is in that, that woman was gorgeous back then. Yeah, she was. But I think it's a clever recap of the first film. It's a clever way to, to tell you what happened in the first film. Because when you look at it, classic Frankenstein, 31, brilliant film, everyone should see it. But you could watch Bride of Frankenstein just as a standalone. And that recap that they have in the beginning fills you in. Yeah, it tells you everything you got to know. Right, you're up yeah. to speed. And we yeah. want to once again point out, this film moves. Yeah. Yes. It goes in, it tells its story, it goes out. It's about an hour and 15 minutes. And yeah, that's it. It just snap, 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 snap. The only thing I don't like about this movie, and the only character that I would, but thankfully they keep her to a minimum, is Frankenstein's wife. Because she's about as boring as watching mm -hmm. clothes dry. Oh, go away to leave him alone. And Dr. Petrus, shut up, bitch. Well, just <laughs> the fake white woman's equivalent of a, you don't touch my man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> she's actually a little nutty in this one. She has that scene where she's sitting there in bed with him. She's talking about the specter of death and it's open there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your husband had transformed you from a blonde to a brunette, you'd be a little nutty too. She's yeah. pointing it from one corner. Wait, it's over there. No, no, no. It's over there. It's over there. And Frank said, would you please just calm down? <laughs> Now, when you make Frankenstein nervous, you know that it's a problem. <laughs> See, now I've got this picture in my mind of Paul Darrow in place oh, of Colin Clive God. in that bed going, Will you please shut up, woman? Yeah, yeah it's like he said, you're making me nervous now. Call me. No, but Henry, it's over there. Look, look, can't you see it? Oh, man. <laughs> I knew this was a bad day to give up smoking crack. <laughs> Let me call up Dr. Jekyll. Yo, Jekyll, if you scored, all right, I'll be right over. You got any more of that homebrewed funky cold Medina? The one that turns you into a green-eyed monster that strangles prostitutes? Oh, okay, my, cool. Oh, God. I think, folks, that if you get nothing else from this rambling <laughs> endorsement is that Bride of Frankenstein is one of our favorites. Uh -huh. And know something else that we haven't even met? The music. The music is operatic. It's gorgeous. Matter of fact, you've probably heard it, people, in a whole bunch of other movies. part of the yeah. Universal House score. Right. Yeah. And you can hear that three-note violin thing for the bride, and you're there. You know it. You yeah, know what, you know what that cue means. It's a Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful music. All of, one of the Universal films had great, great scores. And we haven't mentioned the, another uh, part that everybody remembers from this film, of course, which is the old hermit. Oh, yeah, which was spoofed so well in Young Frankenstein. The old hermit was played by Gene Hackman I, I in that movie. I can't explain right. why in Young Frankenstein this particular voice cue cracks me up. I have another surprise for you. 
Cigars! It's cigars! <laughs> The delivery is great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's all in Ackman's delivery of that. Yeah. I just love how the, the hunters come in and they've lost their way. And there's that look on Karloff's face. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what he's thinking. And one of the hunters who looks like John Carradine. Yeah. It's not him, but it it looks. He said, holy shit, man. Are you blind? Can't you see? He said, oh, you can't see. <laughs> okay. yeah. As soon as he sees them, the monster stands up and just, you know, <laughs> back up. <laughs> I got a good thing going. Yeah, right. He's a delicious. Talk to the stitched up man. Don't screw this up for me. I got free smokes and booze. <laughs> Music when I want. Yeah, don't mess this up. <laughs> I love it. There in that sequence, when he gives the violin to the, the hermit, uh -huh. he starts playing the, and he, that, that, the way that he starts, like. Yeah, banging his head. It's childlike. Yeah. 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 Oh man, and the thing, fire, no good. Like, no, I remember fire bad. Yeah, it's a child. He has a childlike joy at that music, yeah. And what else? The terrific scene where they do capture the monster oh. and they lock him up in the basement and he promptly escapes. Right. <laughs> it's like he's so almost he waiting five seconds, right? Yeah. Nobody's around? Cool. Yeah, and it, it, I just love the Burgermeister because he's standing there, all the fish again, tie him down securely now, and get away from that window. And Udo Kata, there she is, being the signified monkey. Listen, you just make sure you got him locked up. Don't worry about what I'm doing. <laughs> Do I get the impression that you would actually have gone to a movie with the adventures of Yuno O'Connor? Yes, I would have. I'm telling you, in a lot of ways, she makes this movie for me. The last half, she's not in it. It's a little bit of light goes out of the movie. <laughs> because they should have had her at the end still being the signified monkey talking shit. <laughs> you just make sure he's locked up. Don't worry about what I'm doing. <laughs> Monster indeed. <laughs> <laughs> the monster's literally in this weird, bizarre chair. First of all, when they tie him up in that weird position and let him fall into the hay thing. And into then, the hay wagon, yeah. James Whale, I believe it was an interview years later, said he was drawing a direct, uh, and he does this a couple of times in a couple of the movies, drawing a direct comparison between the monster and Jesus. Right. That's supposed to be a crucifixion pose that he's in. He's there, they're throwing things at him, then he falls into the cart. Now, a scene that he tried to put into this movie, and he couldn't, is right before the scene we were talking about earlier with Pretorius down in the crypt there. The monster is coming through this cemetery. And the scene, as it was written with Whale, is he sees a giant statue of Jesus on the cross. And he sees it, and he goes over to it and tries to help Jesus off the cross. Because hmm. he sees a fellow person in pain, right. and then he realizes it's a statue. And just kind of shakes his head, and then goes down and crept. Censor said, no, no way. Isn't that when he just pushes the statue over? Yeah, so James Well says, okay, censors, I'll show you. He changes it to the monster going up to a statue of right. arch and tossing it over and breaking it. Yeah, he just pushes it over completely. And it breaks, mm -hmm. and he goes down, there's a crypt underneath it. Yeah, okay. So the monster overthrowing religion <laughs> this way, that's fine. But him trying to help Jesus off the cross, no, we can't have Yeah, that. it's strange how people thought back then. Oh, yeah. And James Whale was brilliant in kind of being able to be subversive in that way, subtle enough for the censors not to get it. 
Right, but you found a way to get it in there anyhow. He certainly did it with this movie, because this one, it stands the test of time, it still holds up today, and if there was going to be any movie that I would give to somebody to turn them on to the Universal Monster movies, next to The Wolfman, it would be this one right. as well. Definitely. There are just two more things I want to address before we move on to what I consider to be the odd man out of the, of the five movies we're going to talk about. One is, of course, the homunculus scenes. Ah, yeah. Yes. That just seems so weird. It's bizarre and out of place, but for some reason, you don't mind. Yeah. Because you say to yourself, yeah, this Pretorius guy's got a lot of shit going with him. <laughs> yeah, and it works in a weird way. I almost got the feeling when I hosted it, watching that scene, that it was the filmmaker saying, we can do these special effects now, look at this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the yeah. showing off. Yeah, because those effects worked, and they worked really well. Now... You can get into the whole thing of him creating these little characters that actually take on these characters that he puts into them. That's very strange. A weird thing about that scene is, though, that he says, I didn't piece bodies together. I grew them the way nature grows them from seed. Now, you look at that and... Let your mind wander there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The other weird line is, my problem is, of course, size. Hmm... But you've got size to spare. <laughs> Context out. Context. Oh, and to go back to the whole religious thing, he says to Frankenstein something about if you like your Bible stories. Well, I can't remember the exact line, but he mentions Bible stories. In the original script, he says fairy stories mm-hmm. and then quotes the Bible. And Sanders no, 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 we're not going to put up with that. Mm-hmm. So Fessinger says, if you like your Bible stories, but he says Bible stories with such contempt. With such disdain, yeah. yeah. But then that's Pretorius. Yeah. Disdain. And then, of course, maybe it's an unintentional laugh line. No, you go live. Oh, I think that we are. And then just like, you stay. You stay. <laughs> Because <laughs> you just see Pretorius out the corner of his eye trying to see. Yeah, he's trying to. He's doing doing that little Scooby Doo. Yeah. He's doing that. <laughs> you see him doing it, and the monster said, No, you stay. And Pretorius is like, Shit. Because you look at his face, and he knows he's screwed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. is going to put in a lever that blows everything to hell. What purpose would you have this for? One lever that blows up the entire lab. When they're designed the laboratory, right? Okay, we'll put the cosmic infuser over here, and this generator over here, and we'll put the self-destruct lever over here. More importantly, <laughs> more than it nice and big. How did the monster know what it was? <laughs> he shouted, uh, get away from that lever, it'll blow everything to atoms. Yeah, oh yeah, well yeah, exactly, that's what you want to tell somebody who's... who's no, a- you should say, don't touch that lever, it'll give you jock itch. Yeah. <laughs> Urgh. Don't touch that level or blow us a bit. Oh, really? Thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't have known that. Like Red and Skippy Space Madness, right? <laughs> <laughs> Folks, you can have more fun with Brian and Frank inside than you ever thought possible. <laughs> you do know, of course, that there are people that after this are going to run and watch right. this, right? <laughs> Now, did Strick Phantom also do the props for Bride as well as he, as he did for the original? Yeah, it's essentially the same props. I love how Strick Phantom, he says, yeah, I just found all these old things and I just put things together. And then I sit back and go, I can't believe I just put that together. 
Yeah, he was really just kind of an early kinetic artist, really. Oh. Playing with like... From here we go to Son of Frankenstein. And this one to me is like the odd man out of the five films. It's the longest of the five. It almost clocks in about two hours, right? I think so. The look is very different. More modern. More modern. It's got it's this kind of like modern. German expressionistic yeah. feel to it. I flash in that one scene with Wolf and his wife having breakfast in that weird platform suspended in the middle of the room. Yeah. It looks cool, though. Yeah. This is one funky castle. And what keeps cracking me up is that they keep pulling Frankensteins out of yeah. thin air whenever they need them. Well, that crazy brunette must have had some real childbearing hips. I guess so, oh, man. And when you think about from Bride, it's got to be at least 30 years, would mm-hmm. you say, to son? Got to yeah. be, got to be at least. Got to be. Because she had at least three kids in that time. Yeah. Because there's Wolf, and then there's... The Lionel Atwill character. The Lionel Atwill. And isn't there one in one of the house films, too? There's a daughter. Okay. There's so, a daughter, okay. There's a daughter, so... So, uh, obviously, Frankenstein wasn't just stitching dead bodies together. One of the things we can learn in this series... <laughs> Frankenstein liked to fuck. <laughs> so did he just finally realize it was easier than robbing all those graveyards? And stuff? <laughs> oh shit, I could just go to bed with her for a day. You mean I could have been doing this? Is this yeah. a great life? And more fun too. This is why you gotta love Frankenstein. Right. You mean I could have been doing this? <laughs> As opposed to, of course, the Peter Cushing Frankenstein, which always liked to fuck. Oh, yeah, he carried on both studies very well. Right. He, he liked the rape. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He liked taking. He liked the rape. <laughs> the Peter Cushing Frankenstein was. Well, I, I, yo, you and I have talked about this. I will always argue that the, one of the brilliance of the Hammer Frankenstein series is that the true monster isn't the secession of creatures. That comes out of Frankenstein's laboratory. It is from Dr. Frankenstein himself. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's so entertaining watching him while he's screwing up everything in sight. Right. Which is usually what Frankensteins do. Mm-hmm. As in, like, his son of Frankenstein. Yes. Who, though he's, oh, uh, no, I will never follow in my father's footsteps. Because he comes back to the village right. and he's trying to make amends and everybody said, listen, you're Frankenstein. We don't want nothing to do with you. We wish you'd just go away. <laughs> Leave us alone. This is the one with the guy with the funky wooden arm. Yes. Oh, yes. Once again, Kenneth Mars. So. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells a story too. Yeah, I was a little boy. I was a little boy. He said, and the monster ripped his arm out. Good scene. Yeah, and, and the pace is much more deliberate, much more plotting than the first two, which, like I said, are like snap, 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 snap. This one, but again, it's got elements of comedy. Mel Brooks could have directed that scene where. He comes to the town, and it's him and his wife, and it's the pouring rain, and all the villagers are there, and the Burgermeister said, listen, here's your father's books, here's the keys of the castle, here you go. Get the fuck out. Right. And then he tries to make the speech, and says, me and my wife, I hope you be friends, and everybody as one turns around like, oh, bullshit. (laughs) And they turn, and they walk away slowly, and Frankenstein is standing there like, See, that's what that scene needed. Mila Kunis in the background going, Frankenstein! (laughs) Frankenstein! The young Frankenstein draws more elements from Son of Frankenstein than it does from really any of the other films. It's got the great hermit scene, but other than that, it's pretty much a takeoff on Son. Yeah. It's down to Inspector Crow with the wooden arm and yeah. the game and all of that. But, oh, man, I love that scene. It's like Frankenstein go home. Yeah. <laughs> and this yeah. finally yeah. brings yeah. Bela Lugosi yeah. to the party, playing Igor, and unlike... Yeah. 
Fritz from the first film, who's just kind of ornery and stupid. Igor's not a nice man. No, he's much more of a schemer. He's much more of a planner. He's got a definite plan in mind for this Frankenstein. He seems almost... When he first meets Wolf and he recounts the story of why he's still alive, mm -hmm. they can't hang you twice for your crimes, he seems proud of the fact that, yep, undead right here. Yep, tried to hang oh, me. Yeah. Couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, he loves the fact that just by surviving hanging, he outsmarted. No, it just means you got a tougher neck than anybody right. thought. They should have used a thicker rope. <laughs> That's all that means, buddy. You just got lucky. <laughs> well, and there's the scene when they suspect that there's a monster loose. They pull Igor in for questioning, and they've got him on the stand there. All these judges that had sentenced him to hang the first time. And they said, we know you, Igor. And Igor is sitting up there saying, listen, go split. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, Igor. You tried to hang me once. You can't do it again. Just leave me alone. But then as he gets up, he starts coughing. And he spits in one of the judge's eyes. Yeah, uh-huh. Hey, oh, uh, forgive me. Bone get out of Igor's throat. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes away. He's like, oh, uh, Igor, yeah. I slapped my bone in your face. Yeah, go get Igor. <laughs> but in this one, if I remember the plot correctly, what happens is that Igor convinces Wolf that, listen, to make up for what your father did, why don't you dig up the monster, which is buried in the sulfur right. pit up under the castle, and fix actually, it? Actually, no, let me correct you there. The monster's not in the sulfur pit. He's in the sulfur pit at the end of this movie. Oh, okay. Right. In this one, the monster's been alive for a while, but he's sick. Igor befriended mm -hmm. the monster, and they've been... And, and that's what I want to bring up in a moment that I don't know if it's just my twisted brain or what, but the monster got hit by lightning that knocked him unconscious, made him sick. So he convinces Wolf to help the monster to make him walk again and to bring him up to full strength. Right. Which is something, and I don't know if this is just me, but whenever Igor talks about the monster, the first thing he says when he shows the monster to Wolf is, he does things for me. <laughs> He was my boyfriend! <laughs> in this film and in the next film, Ghost of Frankenstein. Oh, God. I'm not convinced that they were trying to hint at that heavily. Ladies and gentlemen, Better in the Dark does not either condone nor condemn alternate lifestyles of any sort. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to make that clear. However, we do not condone the building of monsters from dead things just so you can fuck them. That's Rocky Horror territory right yes. there. When you think about this, the way he acts around the monster, the way he talks about the monster, on the surface, yeah, he's using him as this giant killing machine to get what he wants. Right. But skip ahead for a moment to Ghost. He convinces the doctor at that one put his brain in the monster so they'll always be together. Mmm. It persists, so we'll always be together. I don't know. To think about Reunited it. and it feels so good. Reunited cause it's understood. My brain in your skull. <laughs> This is the first, I think it's the only time you get a child. Yeah, well, that's son. Right. Right, okay. 
He fulfills the son of the son of Frankenstein, in other words. Yeah, he fulfills a purpose there. He is, yeah, he uh, becomes kind of a plot point. He's, he's a point of sympathy for the monster until the monster kind of snaps and kidnaps him. He's got a purpose there, I guess. And of course, this is the film with the infamous fur vest of Frankenstein. Yes, the only time they ever changed the look of the monster in all of these movies. Oh, that big bulky bear. I guess he yeah. ripped it off of a well, bear. I, mean, I, I figure that this is something that Igor made for the monster. Probably at an anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> Valentine's Day. Put on the fur vest that I like. You never get me anything. <laughs> you never take me anywhere nice. I'm a, I'm a hunchback cripple and you're a monster. Where the hell are we going to go? <laughs> the Jersey Shore? Where, where you want to go? Applebee's? Get off my back. We can go to the Jersey Shore. <laughs> we fit right in there. <laughs> Oh, sick of staying in cave. <laughs> Read all these magazines. <laughs> it's interesting, though, that this is the only film in the series that they significantly changed the monster's looks. Actually, was supposed to be filmed in Technicolor. Really? Was, oh, yeah. This was supposed to be a big kind of epic Frankenstein, a big Technicolor kind of blowout, and they never the monster to look in color. It never worked. He just came up with this kind of lying, uh, strange-looking thing. As a matter of fact, if you look it up, it's probably on YouTube. I'm sure there is color footage. It's footage of Karloff, the whole monster to get up with Jack Pierce. Kind of mess around on this, and it's the only color footage of Karloff and the monster around. But he's strange. It looks just green. It looks awful. Grayish. just looks green. They made the race that they can Black and that probably explains why we have all those weird sets and stuff. I think so. It's just such a weird and distinctive film. And then, of course, it's back to the back lot with the next segment in the series. Okay. Which mm -hmm. is? Goes to Frankenstein. Ooh, yes. This is one with Lionel Atwell. Yes. Who takes over as? Which Frankenstein is he? One of the <laughs> yes. I like to call him number two. Number two, that's right. Ludwig? He is, to the internet, he L is uh, Ludwig. 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 Okay, you're right. Ludwig, you got, yeah. you got it in one, Derek. Ludwig. And we've got a little bag as Igor. In this one, Lon Chaney Jr. plays the monster. Ah! Oh. Lon Chaney Jr., the only actor to ever play Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and the Mummy. Really? Right. Mm -hmm. Good for him. That I did not know. And in this one, we have, of course... The Ghost of Frankenstein played by? I think the Ghost of Frankenstein is the reference to... Since the monster is covered in sulfur at this point. Right. This is the one with him in sulfur. Yeah. Okay. Yes. He's dug out of the sulfur. I know there's one of them he was in sulfur. There's a scene, actually, where Ludwig's father appears to him as a ghost. Right. Otherwise, why is it Ghost of Frankenstein? Exactly. It's not Colin Klein, though. Who plays... But he convinces Ludwig to go ahead and fix what's ever wrong with the monster. Even though his brother, Wolf, couldn't do it, his father couldn't do it, but somehow right. they think that this guy could do it. And my question is, where did he come from? Because Lionel Atwell is obviously way older than right. his brother, Wolf. Yeah. So where has he been all this time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They sent him away to school. Well, they were married. Okay, so Henry and Elizabeth weren't even married by the first one, but they got married... At the beginning of two, right? They get fry, and then all of a sudden, these kids started appearing. Yeah. So, I think somebody was having some premarital sex. Well, no. What are you talking about? Henry was too busy. <laughs> That's true. 
He did too busy in the graveyards at night. I'm telling you. Yeah. Elizabeth was saying, what is it you do at night? Hmm, I got a second job. <laughs> I'm saving up for the wedding. That's right. She must have been incredibly just uncurious about everything he did. You know, he's him. Yeah, he does what he does. Oh, Henry. A sign of the times, because back then women were expected to stay at home, and she didn't have anything else to do right. but walk around in flowing gowns and screaming. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So maybe Wine Latwell isn't really Henry's. Mm. Maybe he's Victor's. I thought you were going to say maybe he was Fritz's. Oh! <laughs> maybe he didn't have a hump. Whoever knew that Frankenstein had such twisted sexual connotations involved in it? You guys, it's obvious. You guys are making connections I never saw before. It's obvious that Victor had a thing for Elizabeth. It's obvious that there was some sort of chemistry between May Clark and the actor who played Victor. And in fact, it would not have surprised me if this original ending that they decided not to go with would have ended with the two of them running away together. Sure. That would have been a logical conclusion, sure. Now, in House of Frankenstein, don't we have John Carradine? Yes. Doesn't he play Dracula? He plays Dracula. Frankenstein doesn't actually appear in this movie, does he? I've never seen House of Frankenstein. There is but I've no heard Doctor Frankenstein. Right. At this point now, Frankenstein is referring to the, the monster. monster. The monster. Okay. So how does Dracula get involved in this? Car- Boris Karloff plays an evil scientist, mm-hmm. and he escapes from prison and kills the owner of a traveling carnival. Okay. Which contains within it, as one of its prize showcases, the supposed corpse of Dracula. Hmm, okay. The skeleton with a stake in it. And, of course, because he's an evil scientist, he says, I wonder what would happen if I take this If I pull the stake out, well, of course. (laughs) And he turns it to John Carradine, who I think actually is a much better Dracula than I was led to believe. He's very, very elegant and just very put together. Right. Yeah. He's smooth. I agree. I think that if we were given better scripts and bigger parts as Dracula, you would have done just quite well with it. Sure, I agree. Mm-hmm. This is the one where the monsters never meet. Here's your Dracula sequence, here's your Wolfman sequence where he falls in love with the gypsy girl, and here's your Frankenstein monster sequence. I think you're right. I don't even think the Wolfman and the monster meet in this one. In fact, I don't even think that the monster starts doing his stomping around until the very, very end of the film. (laughs) So what's he doing for most of the movie? He's just in the lab hanging out? I think that they have to go and find him about the midway point. Oh, okay. And yeah, then he's hanging out on a slab in the lab. Pretty much. Well, you have a case of, to quote the famous episode of The X-Files, it's an age-old story, one woman, two men. <laughs> Only in this case, the woman's a gypsy, and the two men are a hunchback and a wolfman. <laughs> you know, it's interesting if you just trace the kind of evolution of the monster. You had his birth at the first one, and Bride, he speaks, he has these kind of human drives, he's hungry, he drinks, he likes to smoke. Then the explosion seems to scramble his brain badly. Really, because by the time of Sun, he only speaks one word and screams when Igor is supposedly shot. They're supposedly dead. By the way, yeah, in Sun, he gets shot in the gut twice and survives that too. So Igor's heart. It's like Bruce Willis in Unbreakable. In Bride of Frankenstein, he's downright eloquent. He speaks in complete sentences and everything. That's right. He's giving commands to the doctor. You work, do it. Yeah. (laughs) Sleep later. Later. Work now. <laughs> he said, oh, go away, go away. When finished, I must then have, sleep. I must have rest. Send him away. 
<laughs> he's like the yeah, most feet. Yeah, that's, that's exactly how he says it, like a little sister. Yeah, leave me alone. <laughs> I can't work. Send him away. And Dr. Pretorius would say, oh, man, what a wuss. I'm about to have the vapors. So what a wuss. <laughs> Here's a question. Do you think Pretorius was supposed to be Jewish? I don't know what the hell Pretorius was well, doing. Because he's wearing the yarmulke at one point. Yeah. Yeah. I that. You know something? You're absolutely right. Yeah. I have no idea. Dr. Pretorius, he's his own man. You know? <laughs> I'm not Jewish or Catholic or anything. I'm just fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I noticed that a couple of times, and there's never any reference to Paul, but he's got that little yarmulke in yeah. that one scene. They never mention it. They never draw attention to it. Like somebody saying, well, why are you wearing it? Yeah, he's just wearing it. I think you're right. It's just for that one scene. Yeah, the homunculus scene. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's never mentioned anywhere, so I don't know. If we come away with nothing else from this, folks, you guys listen to this, is that we find that Bride of Frankenstein has so many hidden subtexts that we have never properly explored before, but I guess that's why it's probably the best one out of the right. five. Okay, getting back to House of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, this one is Glenn Strange's first film yes, as the monster. That's right. And he takes it to the bitter end of the series. Because we skipped over one, and there's one that comes after this. We skipped over Frankenstein versus the Wolfman, which we'll discuss when we get into the Wolfman series, because that's more of a Wolfman story. Yeah, it's story. more of a Wolfman story, yeah. But, oh yeah, so Lon Chaney Jr., who was, of course, emo before emo began. <laughs> Yes, well put indeed. And of course, he appears in this one, he appears in House of Dracula, and then he goes and appears in one of the first big screen horror comedies, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yep. You don't understand. Under a full moon, I turn into a wolf. Yeah, you yeah, would have about 50 million other guys. guys. Yeah. <laughs> the brilliant thing about Abbott and Costello is that it works as a comedy and as a horror movie. Well, that's, well, that's of course, one of my principles about satire. The satire itself has to work as an example of what you're satirizing. And it does work as both a horror film. And we've got Dracula, we've got Wolfman. we got Frankenstein. Mummy okay. comes later. Mummy comes later. But we've got all of those. Universes. And we got the Invisible Man sitting in a boat. Oh, right. yeah, that's at the very end of the book. But then after that... What is the Invisible Man doing in a boat? But this was the one that launched a whole series yeah. of Abbott and Costello meets the Invisible Man, who was a boxer. Right. Lou Costello was a boxer, and the Invisible Man would be in the ring, and he was the one that would actually knock out somebody. Right. And yeah. they meet the mummy, and then they meet all of these different horror Abbott characters. Abbott Costello meet the killer, Boris Karloff. That was the pinnacle. Right. Each one of these other succeeding movies... Because it was what, unique. Yeah, it had never been done before. Yeah. What? You're going to put horror movie characters in a comedy and make it work? And there are some scenes that are pretty effective mm -hmm. that are good, just as anything that we've seen in any of the straight Frankenstein or Dracula movies or anything else that Universal was doing. Absolutely, there were, yeah. The one thing I will say also about House of Frankenstein is that all three of the, the, even Dracula, is treated with some sympathy. Because apparently Dracula is under the thrall of the mad scientist played by Boris Karloff, and he doesn't like it. Right. But he has no choice, because he sends Dracula out to kill mm -hmm. the other scientists who discredited me. So he's just very, very upset with it, and he's straying at the bit, but he acquiesces, he has no choice. But I think that that is a trait through, well, at least with the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman and to some extent the mummy, is that these are characters who are monsters, but they didn't ask for what happened to and them. And the creature, don't forget. And the, the creature, creature from the Black Lagoon, yeah, who was the last great universal right. monster. They didn't ask for what happened to them, especially creature from the Black Lagoon. He was minding his business. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> he wasn't bothering nobody. They came over there yep. messing around with him. Another day in the lagoon. Yeah, just chilling. Going to swim around. Eating raw frogs and fish and living the life. I hosted a creature from Black Lagoon a little while ago and did an interview with the creature's cousin, the creature from the Oakland Estuary. <laughs> his entire take on the whole thing was that the creature's entire problem began because he was mammal curious. Messed <laughs> 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 around with that woman, he'd have been fine. Yeah, he left that human woman alone, he'd been fine. That's right. But yeah, but I think so that it's another one of those films where it's about the brother going after the white woman and ending in tears. Hey. <laughs> Look at it as a metaphor if you want, my man. But so far, we have found a sexual connotation to almost everything. I think that says more about us that than says, about, I'm the about the movies. To say, that says more about us than the movies. But all of the universe monsters have that one thing in common. And I think that's what still resonates with us today. Is that, for the most part, they didn't ask what Larry Talbot. Poor guy minding his business. Happened to get bitten by a werewolf. He didn't ask for that shit. That's right. Mm -hmm. And to find out that he's immortal. Yeah, he didn't ask for that, you know. Yeah, that to me is like the, just though, having somebody piss on your head inadvertently. Unlike Dracula, okay, he was turned to a vampire, but see, in a bizarre twist, he made that work for him. Yeah. <laughs> he became king of the vampires. I may be a short, funny-looking Hungarian, but you're going to sleep with me. Yeah, which is what puts him outside of these other, and that he actively likes, hey, I'm a vampire. It's not bad. Whereas Larry Talbot, he's always looking for a way to kill himself. You drink blood, you can turn into a bat, Stay you can up. go to the local theater, Stay you can up all night. soda. Yeah, he's happy with what he is. Yes. Like, hey, yeah, all right, I'm a vampire. Yeah. You wiggle your fingers, women fall in love with you. Face it, vampirism is a pretty good deal, considering. Uh, yeah, I wish I could wiggle my fingers. And hey, 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 hey. <laughs> if you wiggle them in exactly the right way, the possibilities are endless, my friend. <laughs> This is a dirty, dirty show. Oh, man. This is, uh, yeah, we're going to have to put a maturity in. This is a filthy show. <laughs> dirty. And you know, the only thing that comes to my mind now, you ever see that Simpson episode where Maggie Simpson says to James' old voice, this is a dark universe? <laughs> <laughs> It's the one where Homer's going to all yes. the alternate universes. Because he's trying to fix the toaster. Yeah. And oh. he gets to one and Maggie pulls out the pacifier and says, This is a dark universe. universe. <laughs> so, gentlemen, what have we learned from our examination of... We need the to get some therapy. That's what we've learned. <laughs> That's what we've learned. We think way too much about this stuff. Yeah, apparently so. Oh, my God. Gay Igor. There's me. We're going to hell. <laughs> Hey, Igor. Just get my seat ready right now. That's right. Like we've been saying, the fact that we can talk about these films made in the 30s, right? Made in the last century. Yeah. It's just proof that there's so many layers, so many subcontexts, and so much really great entertainment there that you can examine almost endlessly. Great stuff. I've seen movies in the last couple of weeks that I could not look upon the same way I look at mm -hmm. the Frankenstein movie and come away with so much. Because, as you said, there's so much up under there working. There's so many subtexts. Every time I watch Bride of Frankenstein, I see something new in there I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. It's just that good. And the original Frankenstein as well. So, Blood Rock, yeah. how would you recommend people? Should they watch it chronologically? 
Um, or should they go for Bride I, first? And I work? would say yes. If we're just talking about the Frankenstein films, yeah, I think it's best to watch them chronologically okay. because they all fit together very nicely. They made a conscious effort to link these films together. Plot holes, of course, like where'd all the kids come from? But they made a conscious effort to link these films one to the other. And if you do that, you can actually watch the kind of progress of the monster almost into his full fruition in Bride down to a dumb animal in the other film. It's, it's really interesting uh, progress to watch. I'd say watch him chronologically. So we see his whole life. One, start with Bride. From infancy to childhood to adulthood and then into senility. Very yeah, good. Very good point. Brain changes and yeah. very good point. And, and concussions. By the time he gets to the last movie, he's like he's got Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. now, he, he says one word I think in Abbott Costello, he calls Dracula master. And that's the only word by that point that he can say. He's just following orders now. And you never see him eat anymore. Mm -hmm. which is I've been hearing that Universal wants to do another Frankenstein. Keep Summers away from it. Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> Although maybe the lack of success with the Wolfman remake that Joe Johnson did. Which is such a shame. I really like that movie. The director's cut on the, on the Blu-ray is much better than theatrical, but I like the theatrical. I thought it was quite good. Let me get your opinion on something real quick, Lord Bloodbrah. What did you think of the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein with Robert De Niro's monster? I thought it was needlessly overdone. It came off to me like an opera. And I didn't want that. I wanted a good, exciting telling of the novel. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't get that. It felt overblown to me. I thought that De Niro did a good job as the monster. I mean, acting that part, I thought he did a good job. Overall, the performances in it are good, but the entire thing of Birth of the Monster with a shirtless grandma swinging through the chains and then <laughs> clanking around, I just thought it was overdone. I didn't enjoy it. And I want to mention for those of you, back, I think, during the late 70s or early 80s, Dr. Pretorius did return to the Frankenstein movies, and there was a two-part made-for-TV movie called Frankenstein, The Untold Story. Yes. With Michael Sarazen, Sarazen played the monster. Yes. Yeah, and I believe Jane Seymour played the bride of Frankenstein right. in this one. Until so, she got ripped apart and thrown into a fire. Yeah, well, he ripped the head off. But, folks, if you've never seen it, that's well worth seeing. Too. James Mason played Dr. Pretorius mm -hmm. in this one. That's right. That's well worth seeing. I, I, but he didn't mince like Edward Slesson. No, he didn't. He was a little bit more... He wasn't as entertaining. Let me put it this way. He wasn't the entertaining Dr. Pretorius, we know. But he does play Dr. Pretorius. And if you folks have never seen this before, it's well worth looking it up, if you can. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's on DVD somewhere. Now, going back to a remake of Frankenstein, there have been rumors for quite a while that Guillermo del Toro is interested in doing Frankenstein. Yeah, now that I would pay for. Yes, I would. I, I would love to see that, and I would love to see a Frankenstein film where they took Book of the Monster from the novel. No movies have done that. All the films that have been made, none of them have, not even the Kenneth Branagh, because in the novel, the monster's nine feet tall. He's a true giant. This kind of mummified-looking thing, skin pulled right over this kind of skeleton, long black hair, but nine feet tall. I think the closest that they've come to the Frankenstein monster of the novels is the one directed by Roger Corman, Frankenstein Unbound, that was braced on the Brian Aldiss novel. Close. They threw a lot of metallic elements into the creature, but yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, because mm -hmm. he was pretty big. He wasn't like nine feet tall, but he was like seven feet tall or something. So, he was big. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's face it, he was big. He was yeah, big. He that was a pretty right. good adaptation. Matter of fact, that was closer to the novel than I thought it really. That was going to be. Yeah, that mm -hmm. was pretty good. So, to sum up, see these movies and you should probably stay away from broken neck hunchbacks. Because yeah. they'll want you to be their boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to do things for them. No, it's not. <laughs> I will do things, I will do things for, for you. you. I would do anything for you. Anything. And we should mention that this episode was brought to us by, I, I wish I could remember, that weird British detergent company that almost killed Lord Blood Raw. <laughs> what? You recorded an episode of uh, Nerve Wracking Auditorium. No, uh, The Room, it was uh, called, was the name of the story, and the recording you had had these bizarre commercials with these British people chanting, Get Whites Cleaner! Tense. Yes! Just soak in biotaps. Just soak. So it's the most annoying commercial I've ever heard. <laughs> it's a South African radio show, Beyond Midnight, and they were sponsored by Biotext. My God. <laughs> uh oh, just soak in Biotext. Just so, and it just wouldn't stop. He has the opening, and there's a middle host segment and a close segment. Mm -hmm. And as each segment came around, he became more and more under the control of biotech. <laughs> I was listening to this on the street. I'm walking down Myrtle Avenue, and I was cracking the fuck up. And actually, people were looking at you like you were cracking up, no doubt. And the funny oh, thing yeah. is, the a second before you said, man, that is an annoying jingle, I was thinking to myself, that jingle was so annoying. <laughs> More annoying than the Silver Shamrock? Yes, yes. Oh my god. Yes, oh. more annoying than the Silver Shamrock story. I, although the other one that you, you did from Beyond Midnight, uh, the voodoo theme story, Bring Back Her Bones. Oh, yes. I dug that story something fierce. That's a good one. I, I enjoyed that one. It's very strange, involving time travel through yeah. voodoo and, and various things like that. But yeah, good story. Old-time radio was just great because theater of the mind, your imagination... But yes. still, nothing what beats the? the opera singing gorilla. <laughs> the what? Yeah. Woo! Hello, Blood Rock! Tell about the opera singing gorilla! Where do you keep pulling this yes. stuff from? It was called Spawn of the Subhuman, or some, something of the Subhuman. <laughs> now, now, keep in mind, there are no spawns, nor are there any subhumans in this serial. <laughs> yes, absolutely not. Just kind of a long story short, it ends up that this mad scientist takes an opera singer and, through some surgical means, enables a gorilla, using this opera singer's vocal cords, to be able to sing. Now, the fella is flying an airplane when we first meet him. He's kidnapped uh, this Broadway star, essentially, run on a plane. The gorilla's flying a plane, right? The gorilla can speak well. They land mad scientist's island, bring him in, they the mad scientist, and the gorilla starts to sing in this glorious voice, and he's going to take the Broadway singer's vocal cords and put it into a female gorilla. And then all of a sudden, the gorilla starts to lose its voice. And, I mean, it's thinking voice. It can still speak. Well, and of course. That the opera singer was having problems with his throat. He had some kind of disease where he was losing his voice. So, therefore, now the gorilla is losing its voice. The man scientist goes nuts, tries to kill the gorilla. And the gorilla kills him. Now, the moral of the story is, he says, like, what you've got. You've got a gorilla can fly an airplane. Singing the opera. <laughs> Look at this. He can speak. He can fly an airplane, right? 
if I ever get a time machine, one of the places I want to go to is the office of this particular radio show on the day that the guy turned in the script for the story. <laughs> yes. I just want to see the guy looked at the script, look reading up at the it. Writer, yeah, just his expression as he's reading this. Look up yeah. the script, look at the writer, go, I got nothing. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> it's like the vegetable episode of Lost in Space. The oh, the Great Vegetable Revolution. <laughs> Rebellion, yeah. That's right. Supposedly, Jonathan Harris, when he got the script, went into the writer's office and threw the script down on the desk, and the writer looked up at him and said, I don't have another idea in my head. <laughs> By that time, they were pretty burnt out on all that peyote. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in case you've been wondering what this is all about, I strongly recommend that you go to DrunkenZombie.com every... It's Friday that the new episodes drop? It comes out whenever in the week I can get it in. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, and check out Fair Lord Bloodraw's nerve-wracking auditorium where every week he plays a different radio play from the golden age of radio, some of which are... Damn strange. And this is just as good a time as any for Lord Blood Rod to tell us where folks can find him on the internet and what he's doing and what he's going to be doing and take it away. Well, thank you. Yeah, definitely go to drunkenzombie.com, check out my weekly podcast, Lord Blood Rod's Nerve Racket Auditorium. Follow everything else I'm doing. Friend me on Facebook. That's the best way to find out things I'm doing. If you're listening to this here, in the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm doing fairly regular shows in three venues. There's the Bow Theater in San Leandro, which, by the way, my next show coming up there is going to be a Karloff and Lugosi double feature, Black Cat and the Raven. Ooh, sweet. Which are, these are two universal films with Karloff and Lugosi. You don't see a big screen much. Folks, the Black Cat, you have to see that one. Oh, yeah. That one is just off the chain. It's the only movie I could think... Well, no, there was Chandu the Magician, but this is one of the only movie I could think of where Lugosi plays the good guy. Now, you know you're in trouble when it's a movie where Bella Lugosi is the good guy. That's right. Lugosi is victimized and very put upon in this movie, and he's essentially the good guy compared to Armoff <laughs> a satanic priest. Yeah. We're talking about a 1930s film with a satanic priest. Yeah. He's got his own satanic cult in the basement of his Art Deco mansion, sitting mm -hmm. on top yeah. of the mountaintop. This is also an incredibly visually striking oh, film. Oh, yeah. impressive. Just the visuals alone. It's got that fantastic scene where he sits up in his bed like he's a vampire coming up out the coffin. When Bella Lugosi and the other people, they get, oh man, yeah. Folks, you gotta see the black cat. It's a gorgeous film and rarely seen on the big screen. And believe me, since I've been hosting these live shows, I've come to the conclusion that because I've seen all these films that I've hosted many, many, many times on TV, you haven't seen them until you see them on the big screen. Trust me. The experience sitting in a the theater watching these the way they were supposed to originally be represented, fantastic. The other shows I'm doing are at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland. The old Parkway was where Thrillville used to happen with Will the Thrill Pro Gold Stamp local host. The Parkway at 24th Street, and I'll be hosting The Howling there, as well as other shows coming up, including one that I'm thrilled to be doing. This isn't until October 6th, but there is brand new digital restoration of Lugosi's White Zombie. Ooh. I've heard about this, because I know that somebody's showing it on the East Coast sometime fairly soon. Nice. I'm hosting it out at the new Parkway October 6th, and I can't wait. Everybody's seen White Zombie, I hope. It's a great film. Mm -hmm. This digital, have never seen it like this. It's pristine. It's going to be gorgeous. Absolutely great. 
And you, sir, are to be commended for your part in putting these movies back up on the big screen, as you say. Because no matter how big a TV set you get, no matter how much the high definition is, there is still nothing like the effect of seeing these movies on the big screen. It's my pleasure. I love sharing these films and this genre that I love. It's great to share the excitement for these films with the audience, and I, I love it. For those of you who have loved hearing him talk with us, Blood Raw will be back, hopefully very soon, because I think next we're tackling Dracula, right? Nice. Look forward to it. And we're going to go through all of them. We're going to do the Dracula, we're going to do the Wolfman, Wolfman. we're going to do the Bowery Boys. No, no, sorry, I didn't put that last one up. <laughs> How did the Bowery Boys never met the classic monsters? What was up with that? I don't didn't, know. They, didn't they meet Dracula? No. They didn't meet a Brooklyn gorilla. Yes, they did. But I'm pretty sure that they ran up against Karloff or Lugosi in one of their movies. I'm pretty sure I remember reading, uh, seeing somewhere, the Bowery Boys meet Bella Lugosi. I like the fact, by the way, that they somehow identified that it was a Brooklyn gorilla. As opposed to? An African gorilla. Or, or... <laughs> As if gorillas are native to Brooklyn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what kind of gorilla was that? It was obviously a Brooklyn gorilla, Professor. <laughs> Those are two different films. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla was a rejected Lewis and Martin script. It was supposed to be Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. They rejected it, and they got a Lewis and Martin knockoff. Not Petrello and... Uh... It was. Petrillo and that other guy. Petrillo, yeah, we can never remember the other guy. We, we barely remember, remember Petrillo. <laughs> I can remember Sammy Petrillo. I can never remember the other guy. Petrillo and Ersatz Dean Martin. Yeah, because Petrillo was supposed to be their bootleg Jerry Lewis. Okay. And there was a bootleg Dean Martin. Okay. They were in films such as Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla and The Invasion of the Star Creatures. Okay. Oh, that's right. Invasion of the Star Creatures, yes. Those were the, that the big eye. In the middle? They were in star costumes? No, no. That's a Japanese film. That's a Japanese film I'm picking up? You're actually attributing this film a bigger budget than it actually had. Ah, okay. Well, we could build the set, or we could just shoot in Bronson Canyon. What do you think? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think we're going to do? <laughs> build the set? No, no! And so, as the sun slowly sinks in the west, <laughs> we wanted to give a rousing... Round of applause to our co-host today, Lord Bloodrock, and thank him again for his participation. Thank you again, sir. It's been a lot of fun today. I found out a lot about you that I didn't know, man. <laughs> I think we all need therapy. I think we've all learned a little something here today. I know I did. I'm so glad we had this time and together, together just to, to share a laugh and sing a song. Just before you know it, I don't know the rest of this song. Comes a time we have to say so long. Oh my lord. And most people are going like, what the fuck is going on up there? No, they're saying once again, Derek and Tom have gone off the rails. <laughs> Go get the bloodhounds. They have left the okay. reservation once again. Well, in a, in a minute. <laughs> In a minute or two, we'll be using our pre-recorded message to tell you where to send us feedback and money. But beforehand, we would like to always bring up what's going on with our various writing endeavors. Derek is continuing to move his way through the year of Dylan with coming soon, The Vril Agenda. Yep, which teams up. Dylan with classic pulp hero Jim Anthony in a segment is written by my good buddy Joshua Reynolds. His segment takes place in World War II and then we jump to the present era where Dylan and Jim Anthony take on Sunco in a battle to the death. Not Sunoco. Sunco. Sunco. 
Look them up on the internet. You that would be a much different that. book if yeah. they, they faced Sunoco. And also later on this year, I just finished doing the editing for it, the 10th anniversary, anniversary edition of Dylan and the Voice of Odin. I've got a new cover, everything for it, and you will be seeing that along with the real agenda so you're gonna have sometime like, this year. You're going to have that Remo Williams Destroyer-esque banner on each of the, the books? What do you mean? Well, I've seen the logo design. Yeah, there's With one. Dylan holding the gun. Oh, no, that's the other thing oh, that Sean okay. Alley did. I know what you're talking about. There's something else. You'll see it, but it's a cover design that I've got. The point is to make all the books look like they're part of a series, which is what somebody, a good friend of mine who knows marketing, says right. is the problem. That she said, if you want to sell them to a wider market, make them look like they're all part of the series. Right. So that's what I'm doing. Okay. And, well, and also in the hopper, you got The Further Adventures of Virgin McCall. Yeah, well, now that I've finished with the real agenda, I can jump back into doing that, which is part of the Sovereign City project that was initiated by Tommy Hancock over at Prose Press already. Barry Reese has done three Lazarus Great books. You're going to be jumping on board pretty right. soon with your own character, Tao Jones. Tell us something about that. Well... Dow Jones is, I'll be very frank about it, is my love letter to uh, Peter O'Donnell in the Modesty Blaze novels. Sweet. What if Modesty Blaze, instead of being what she was, was Follow Sweet, the daughter of Fu Manchu? Mm. So she's got a woolly garvin, and then they go around, and they're going to have adventures. And my friend Dave, I don't know if we've mentioned in previous episodes, he's responsible for those weapons you see me in my right, profile in photo. Right, your profile photo, yeah. Right now. He is designing life-size props for the distinctive Chris and punch dagger that Dow uses, mm-hmm. along with the multi-gun signature weapon of the Nightbreaker from okay. the Shadow Legion. Yeah, from the Shadow Legion. So we're going to be seeing Dow Jones later on this year. I hope, yes. Definitely, okay. And the Shadow Legion, elaborate. Airship 27, the first book is in the can. I've been told that we might not see it till the fall. And that's New Roads to Hell, where we get to meet the Nightbreaker, Black Talon, Dreamcatcher, the Ferryman, and of course, Rose Red. Rose Red, yeah. Who's not a nice person. It's going to be the villain of the year. <laughs> I don't know about the year. Think positively. And I've already got two stories in the can for the next book, which is the uh, Shadow Legion case book. Mm -hmm. Earlier this week, you got the Nightbreaker story. Yes, I did. Which features the Nightbreaker punching robotic octopi in the face. Mm -hmm. Which I will probably read tomorrow, because I have nothing planned for tomorrow except watching the Oscars and... I'll probably... I, I can't watch any of that stuff. Well, so... Yeah, I'm sorry. Who cares? Who cares? It, doesn't, it doesn't interest you. Fine. Don't interest you. you it know, interests me. I respect your right to be interested. And I respect your right to not there be interested. Go. See, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how some people say it goes to look at them like if they have a heavenly glow. Well, I don't watch the Oscars. Okay, so you don't watch it. Plenty of people don't watch it. I didn't watch the Oscars for 10 years after Martin Scorsese didn't win for Goodfellas. Right. He got robbed that year because there was no better movie that year than Goodfellas as far as I'm concerned. But then I said, I'm home anyway. Why the hell not watch it? And I do want to watch it this year because they're supposed to have all the James Bonds are going to be on stage presenting. Okay. And award yeah. and, and Adele, she's going to do a live performance of right. Skyfall. Yeah, and I definitely want to see that. Now, as a karaoke person, I do really like and respect Adele. Mm-hmm. But there are certain musicians that you, you learn to kind of resent a bit. Here's why. Adele sings so effortlessly. Yeah. But what a lot of people don't realize is that her voice is very, very distinctive. She's capable of doing things that a normal human voice can't. Okay. But because she makes it sound so effortless, any drunk girl 
thinks she can sing like Adele. <laughs> Especially if she's drunk. <laughs> so what happens is, invariably... You get some drunk brought up there trying to sing Chasing Pavements. <laughs> no, set fire to the rain. It's oh, usually the, the one that they choose. Or someone like you. One of the yeah, people, someone like you, yeah. Songs, and it's just... <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're doing the throat slashing. There was one woman who did this every week for a while. And she did Set Fire to the Rain. We started calling it Set Fire to the Song. <laughs> <laughs> the dangers of karaoke. Yes. There are now artists that even though I respect them, I find it hard to listen to certain songs now. Yeah, you're right. Because I did watch, they had a live concert that they broadcast on NBC a while back of her. And you know what I like about her? She doesn't need all the flashy stuff. She just stands in one spot. She just sings. As opposed to and the that's she, all, she I mean, I mean Beyonce. And that's all she needs to do. Beyonce. Say I don't hate her as much. Remember, I don't hate her at all. Right. But I just say to myself, if you're gonna sing, sing. If you're gonna dance, then right. dance. I don't have a problem with lip syncing. Neither do I. I don't understand what the big deal is because, okay, let's face it. There is no way humanly possible you can do all that dancing and sing at the same time. Not even that. There's no human way possible. Especially the prices that are being paid for concert goers. Mm -hmm. They want to hear the song. Well, yeah, exactly as they heard it on Z100 or K Rock or whatever. Or, even worse, what they want to do is that they may have seen the video. And what they essentially want to see is the video right. live on stage, which is why they have to do all of this. And I understand that. And with the prices that they're charging for tickets, yeah. They don't want to see somebody just stand on the stage. I want to see backflips. Right. I want to see you ride a horse. I want to see you swing on the trampoline with a Brooklyn gorilla. <laughs> I want to see you bring out your homunculus. Are you familiar with the website Bad Lip Reading? No. No. It's this group, or whoever they are, I don't know who does it, but they take these videos. They'll do scenes from movies. They'll do campaign speeches. They'll, they did the entire presidential debates, and they'll do bad lip reading along with it to make the most bizarre things come out of these people's mouths. <laughs> they did Beyonce singing the national anthem at the inauguration, and it's called La Fuey. It is some of the most hilarious stuff I have ever seen. And what's the name of this again? Bad Lip Reading. I think Bad Lip Reading. Okay. LipReading.com and it, it's the first video that'll come up right on top because it's their latest one and it's called La Fuey. Oh my god, it's hilarious. Oh my god. It, it sounds very similar to the, the literal music videos I used to love. Yes, exactly. That's right. Mm -hmm. kind of based on that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. But anyway, we need to wrap this up. Yes, I think we can only take so much hilarity for one day. And I think we have more than reached our limit. Once again, to the thank you to our guest host, Lord Blood Raw. Thank you, thank sir. You. Thank you. Thank Set you. fire to really the really monster. <laughs> Let it... Sorry. <laughs> and until next time. <laughs> Good night. As the dancing hunchbacks go out the door, <laughs> go watch that Universal Monster movie. Good night. Good night. Good night. I'm going to repay you for betraying me. I'm going to give that brain of yours a new home in the skull of the Frankenstein monster. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? Yeah.
you've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Lord Ludra, the Drunken Zombie Crew, the Soda Jerkers, Eric Frome, and the members of the Better in the Dark Facebook page. No, I don't want to do it! Better in the Dark once tried to play God, but didn't take to the weird hunchback wanting it to... Do things for him. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to better in the dark at earth2.net. That's better in the dark at earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a conspiracy productions present in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that you can teach inanimate corpses to smoke, eat, and even drink wine. But we don't advise you to teach them to sing Adele. No, I don't want to do it! Oh, magic and technology. Frankenstein, where is it? Where is it? Ah! Quiet, you fool! Get away with that torch!